0: So my guest this week on, on site is Thomas Juhl Hansen. Hopefully I have that pronunciation correct. He'll That's correct pretty me.
1: damn good. Yeah, pretty damn Great.
0: good. Great. It's my South African accent. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've been called uh, Swedish before and Danish. So um, you were born in Copenhagen, right? I,
1: yeah, born in, in, and raised in, in Copenhagen. And um, in this country here, <laughs> strangely enough, People think Copenhagen is in the Netherlands or in Holland, as, as, we, as we call it. So you can see, if you're if you're Swedish, then I'm I'm Dutch. So there you go.
0: <laughs> well, I can we can speak a little bit of Afrikaans, but uh, most of our listeners probably wouldn't understand it. <laughs> yeah. uh, but But uh, so everyone is good. Well, I know we were speaking before, and you have some sick kids at home which is very stressful it's tuesday the 24th and we're in the midst of this pandemic that everyone is dealing with you know i don't want to spend talking too much time on the pandemic i think that's what we're all listening to and reading at this time but i want to talk to you a little bit more about you know architecture and your personal life but everything everyone is good how are you coping with this pandemic
1: i'm fortunate enough to have a house outside of the city i bought a, a piece of land about i don't know eight ten years ago up in Solomon County where um, land is, is borderline free and uh, uh, we built a house up here. So we we are, let's say, isolating ourselves up here now at, at this point. I, I don't really know if we have this virus enough or not, but I think to be safe, we're going to sit up here for a couple of weeks and, and let everyone be, be done with their sort of very mild sicknesses, which are more... I would describe more almost like a um, like a stomach bug of some kind, but you know, reading everything that we all are every day, you know, every time someone sneezes, of course you think you're two minutes away from needing a uh, respirator. So everyone right. hears, ev- everyone here is fine, but but we figured we'd just check out, and and uh, I sent my office home about a week and a half ago, so everyone is working from home, and and we all have. You know, daily uh, conference meetings online with GoToMeeting Meeting and, and Microsoft Teams and so on. So,
0: it's actually working uh, surprisingly efficient. So we'll see how it goes. You know. So um, I'm ask a stupid question. You designed the home that you built. I did. Yeah, yeah. I, I designed it. And what is and- what is that like uh, designing? And you're, you're your own client. When I built this, which is not that long ago. As you often find
1: with people in my field, we, we don't have the same kind of money as our clients do. So it's sort of an interesting uh, exercise because basically every decision I made on this house was the cheapest possible solution. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my goal was, you know, I, I bought the land for very, very little money. We have seven acres up here in the southern end of, of Sullivan County. And, and uh, my goal was to build the house cash so I didn't have a loan in it. I didn't want to sit with two mortgages. We we own an apartment in the city that we have a big mortgage on, so we wanted sort of to have a place where, where it wouldn't become a financial burden on us. So every decision I made on this house was the cheapest possible solution. I wouldn't say that's necessarily how we operate with our clients, but it was a, it was a very interesting process, and it's it's a great house. It's a great, very simple uh, house, but. And and very sort of I'm I'm out in the woods in a little town called Berryville, which is up in as I mentioned, the southern end of of Sullivan County on the Delaware River, and um, we clad this this very modern house. It's sort of two stacked boxes, if you will. It almost looks like two mega shipping containers uh, sort of offset on top of each other. But we I, I found this company in in Colorado that had obtained a contract from wyoming to pick up all the old snow fencing i don't know if you know you south african you don't have a lot of snow fences there but snow fences are basically fences that are put along the roads out in the middle of nowhere so that when the snow blows over it it stops the snow and prevents it from clogging onto the street if you will so this right yes uh, i've seen this uh, yeah this this was wood that had been sitting out there for probably about 100 years and completely weathered and sort of gotten this beautiful cleaner. So I, I picked up a bunch of, of, of sort of planks from there and clad the whole house in this. So you look at the house, you know, it, it's obviously a very modern, super clean house, yet it looks like it's been here a fucking hundred years. So, you know, my neighbors don't really know what to do with us. All.
0: So so that I, <laughs> I, yeah, I enjoy that. It's, it's great. That's amazing. That's awesome. It seems like now with this this pandemic going on people are being like more resourceful and respecting materiality and recycling things and making sure i don't know that's just the way i feel it's almost like you know you have to really look at what you have and make the most out of what you have and you know reuse what you have into a better use has that always been your mentality yes and no right people always
1: ask me the question well you know uh, you know, what about your? You know, do you, is 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 your work lead certified? Do you use recycled materials and so on? And and for me, there's sort of two angles to look at that question, right? One is sort of the traditional answer to that, which is, oh, you know, this is made from recycled tires and this is made from recycled bottles and and so on, which is sort of addressing from one side how to deal with the waste society that that we live in today. But the other angle is is a more traditional Danish way of thinking, which is how do you make something that you don't need to throw out? How, how do you make something that has longevity? How do you build something that doesn't get torn out, that doesn't get blown apart, that doesn't date? Right? And and that's sort of the the. Where I put most of my energy. Of course, we don't use woods from the rainforest and so on. When we put oak floors in a building, it's always you know uh, FSC uh, um, you know certified and, and and so on. So that's sort of one side of it. But but the the thing I put most attention to, quite honestly, is how do I design something that someone doesn't get tired of? How do I design something that doesn't date? How do I design something that that isn't necessarily part of Two thousand twenty in, in a way. And and that's I think a much more interesting uh, way to, to think about things. If you go to a home in, in, in Denmark, you'll you'll notice that you can go to a fairly modest farm house in in the middle of Denmark, and you'll go into the home and, and you'll find an egg chair by a Jacobsen or, or something of that nature, right? And and so well it's a different way of, of thinking about it. This might be a chair that has passed down through several generations of this family or it may just be someone who saved up for this chair for a goddamn year and bought it and now they're going to hold on to that piece of furniture for the rest of their life and the kids will take it from there and hold on to it for the rest of their life and and i think this is, is a very interesting way to think about design and really all things material for for that matter i'm not someone who who has any kind of linked to material possessions. It, it quite honestly doesn't interest me at all. I, I'm into furniture. We design furniture for most of the projects we design. But I'm sort of into the, the part about making it and, and, and so on. But the material possessions themselves don't really interest me. I have almost none. I've, I've moved over the last 10 or 15 years. I think we probably had eight or nine apartments. So you get used to um, traveling light in, in that way, you know.
0: What does your living room look like? Like, are you very minimalist in your like very little furniture? You don't we, have like we, ch- stuff like you know chachkas and little we don't, vases we, we, and stuff like no, that. No, we we have a, a little bit of you know
1: vases and and so on, but you know we, we don't have a lot of furniture. Like like in our in our apartment in the city, we don't even have a sofa, but we have a few things, and they are you know I don't want to say pieces, but they're certainly. Objects or, or furniture pieces that I know I will have for sure for the rest of my life, however long that that may be, and and hopefully my kids will will uh, appreciate what they are and hold on to them also. That that you know the idea of sort of buying and getting rid of and buying and getting rid of, it just doesn't interest me. My my father was born in a small island in um, in Denmark called Bornholm, which you probably haven't heard of. It's it's a it's a tiny. I think it's 40 kilometers from one end to the other he was born in uh, in 1917 and you know during the first world war and grew up on this farm and put himself through through engineering school when he was 14 years old by selling beers in the in the drafting room and and, and drafting equipment and so on so i'm i'm kind of raised with the mentality of perhaps a, a generation that is above me in in that sense so you know the the sort of frugality and and really paying attention to not wasting money and not wasting things is something that I'm that I'm very interested in I don't want to say it's a sport but it certainly is is something that that I it's a way of living basically it's not being cheap it's just you know really thinking about what it is that you need and, and you want and, and not just buying shit right and left like everyone else is doing and cluttering up I'm not interested in that I have, right. I, have I have four daughters so you know with with the five females in my home I'm totally outnumbered <laughs> and um, my, my house is basically pink, and my apartment in the city is pink and, and, and white. And, <laughs> and then uh, we're fortunate enough to live in, in, in a building that I participated in uh, a couple of years ago. We have 20 foot ceilings, which is quite extraordinary floor to ceiling glass. 50 West, you probably know it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it well.
0: Yeah. And um, uh, so we have beautiful interiors, beautiful building. Do, do um, your daughters and wife subscribe to the same point of view with, uh, with less is more?
1: Yeah, strangely enough, yes. But certainly my wife does. She will think about something a hundred times before she goes out and, and actually purchase even a, a piece of clothing. She will turn it in her head many times. But uh, interestingly yeah. enough, my, my oldest daughter, who's 14, has, has really
0: very little, in my opinion,
1: connection to material values, which I appreciate.
0: So, are your children uh, American? They're all born here. Yeah, my my so, two I oldest, mean, yeah. my two
1: oldest kids uh, are, are fourteen and six, and they are uh, half Danish, half Taiwanese. And my two youngest kids, which are, are twins, are then half Danish and and half uh, American Mexican. So right. Uh, we we got the whole
0: uh, Benetton. You have the, you have the United Nations in your That's house. It. That's, it. <laughs> That's it. I mean, yeah. you know, there seems to me, I visited Japan for the first time last year. And first of all, the older I get, the more I subscribe to this philosophy of less is more. And I, I seem to, you know, the older I get, the more I want to get rid of and the less I want to have and make sure that it's really just items that are important and necessary and thoughtful And that seems to be the general consensus in, you know, the East, Uh, you know, Japan, I certainly found that. And now people like Marie Kondo is is really making headway through the mainstream. But, you know, it seems to me that the Europeans and the Asians have long had this philosophy. Why do you think the Americans and the West, you know, but largely America is, is almost the exact opposite of this? It's this consumerism we want we want we want we just want to buy as much as possible replace it every room in the house has a tv there's a sofa in every corner why do you think that is
1: i think our country here is of a much stronger capitalistic uh mindset than and certainly Denmark which is you know pseudo uh socialist for you know they the social democrats i, I guess they call it right but it is it is sort of pseudo socialist so the sort of uh, attachment to money and what money can buy you, I, I think, is a bit stronger in, in this country than certainly in, in Europe. There's maybe a, a longer history in Europe in, in the sense, you know, like we had a TV when I grew up, right? It was a black and white TV. Jesus, I sound like I'm, I'm fucking 600 years old.
0: But No, by the way, I'm the same thing. The first time I saw TV, I think I was 14 years old, and it was black and white. Black and white. It was black and white <laughs> yeah. But you know, when when
1: that TV broke, you got it fixed, and when it broke again, you got it fixed again. The 24 inch refrigerator that we had in Denmark, which my mom always thought was, a, a, you know, it was like a walk in fridge to her. It was so big. I think we had that repaired seven or eight times, you know, it's just, it was different. And, and I'm sure they could have, if you added that up, they could have probably bought three refrigerators for the same money, but that wasn't really the point. The point was, why are we going to waste this? Why are we going to throw it out? We'll get it fixed. You know, someone will come and they will fix it and we pay him to fix it. And this guy will have a job because of that. And, and it was just a different way of, of seeing that, that sort of, you know, circle in, in society. Also, the cost of, of things here compared to Denmark, certainly, is different. You know, in Denmark, the, the cheapest car you can buy is probably, Jesus, man, it's probably like a $50,000 car, and it's and it's probably a Russian-made Skoda or, or whatever, some shithole, you know, a piece of shit. And, and here you can buy a car for 15, 20 grand that is 10 times as good. So when that car breaks down and so on, you don't necessarily, after the third time, you, you just throw it out and you buy a new one.
0: Right. So, so I I think there's an attachment to that also. Yeah. So now let's talk about you know architecture. I mean, you said earlier that you like to be thoughtful about designing and creating things that you know for longevity. How do you do that? What do you do in architecture that designs for that? How, How do you solve for that problem? architecture and, and design is sort of a, a strange field today like like everything
1: else right that that there are a lot of people making decisions specifically design decisions based on the fact that they think it will get them attention and if they get attention maybe they will get another commission somewhere right so so there's a lot of people out there sort of seeking, gimmicks and sort of very strong acrobatics in their design and architecture because you know frankly the the ego is is driving them to do that but my thinking has always been you know put put your ego uh, aside N- nobody gives a fuck about me nobody gives a fuck about my ego it's it's completely I- irrelevant but what is relevant is that I'm in a position to build buildings in New York City and and with that comes a, a sort of civic responsibility in 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 my opinion. And so the street in New York City is basically everyone's living room to some extent, right? You can, you can say that. And so if if I'm going to put up something in someone's living room that, that everyone in the city is exposed to on a daily basis, I, I better be sure that it's something that is suitable. It is something that is of high quality, not only from a construction standpoint, but also from a material standpoint. I better make sure that this building doesn't look like it's 20 years old in the second year of, of its life. And I better make sure that it isn't something that is so outrageous or ego-driven that it loses perspective of the fact that, you know, this is something that needs to to fit in to New York City, whatever that may be, right? You know, we, we see all of us, you know, glass buildings going up right and left. And, and I frankly, I, I got to tell you, it's something that I, I just find is, you know, a, a detriment to New York City. These these glass uh, towers coming up, right and, and, and left, they have no soul. They have no personality. They have no thought gone into the design of, of these buildings. There's nothing you can design quicker than a glass building, in my opinion. And I know this. I'm I'm not going to make friends in the architecture community by saying this, but you know, frankly, I think it's sort of a a, a shortcut for for a lot of people to, mm-hmm. to to pull these things out of their ass almost and just knock up one glass tower after another. They all to me they all look the same and they none of them have a soul or or character or you know personality or even heart for that matter. You're not supposed to talk about emotions when it comes to architecture, but I think it's actually very important. What we do instead is try to focus on the the neighborhood where we're building, right? My argument has always been that if you build by the high line it's a different city than building on the Upper West Side. If you build on the Upper West Side, it's a different city than building on the Upper East east Side. If you're building on the Upper East Side, it's a different city than than building in in the financial district, for instance, right? So each of these uh, neighborhoods, if you will, or Lower East Side, they all have their own character and their own personality. We have projects that we've done in in all these places, and and we have projects in, in Beverly Hills. We have projects in Brentwood. I've done projects in... In Miami, we have two buildings in, in Thailand right now. We have projects in London. Every one of these have their own DNA that comes from the location where you built. So for me, it's, it's extremely important to, to really visit. Even uh, Lima, Peru, we're doing a project now. It's extremely important for me to visit where we are and really understand where we're building and what is the context, what is the history of this particular neighborhood. You know, the history of the Upper West Side is totally different than, than the history of the High Line. So how do you build in, in a place like this, where you, on, on one hand, are able to achieve the DNA from what is there, but on the other hand, you, you don't try to make a building that looks like it was built 100 years ago, right? And, and that's sort of uh, always been interesting to me. By using high-quality materials and by using natural materials, I have, in my experience, found that this is the best way you can hedge against uh, something becoming dated. Nobody looks at at limestone or, or travertine for that matter, and says, "Oh, travertine is so fucking two hundred b c right Travertine has been for thousands of years <laughs> for thousands of years, people have been using travertine to clad both interior and exterior of the buildings and And today we do the same, and and you know history has shown that that you know if you really lean on natural materials to help you with your expression you're in a pretty good starting place in terms of trying to achieve longevity. That's at least my opinion.
0: Right. No, no. I, I, everything you just said resonates with me a thousand percent, and I, I couldn't agree more. So I'm going to ask you a difficult question then. You studied, or actually you worked for Richard Meyer. I did. Correct? Yeah. So correct me if I'm wrong, but he's known for his minimalism glass buildings i don't i believe everything he does is kind of glass they all tend to have the same aesthetic and i'm not saying ego would drive his design maybe he, i don't know him personally but his buildings seem to have the same aesthetic design components so how was that experience for you um working there I would say that the experience for me as sort of,
1: uh, you know, this was early in, in, in my career, right? Before I started my own company. I would say the experience for me was a really, really educational one because it, it wasn't so much about the aesthetic of, of what Richard Meyer's work is. You're right in a sense that that I'm not sure if you asked Richard to design a building in Frankfurt or a building in, you know, Chicago, if he would necessarily come up with two different answers, But having said that, the diligence and precision that went into his work was beyond anything that that I could ever describe. You know, everything that he does is based on on a grid that every single component in the building is aligned with. So there is an extraordinary rigor in his work that that is not necessarily obvious unless you really, really look closely at, at what he's doing. You may have a door handle on one side of the building and there may be a window frame on the other side of the building and the two have perfect alignment because everything is laid out on this you know, obsessive grid that they work from. It was a great experience for me. The, the people that, that work in his office or at least worked there back then were, were some of the smartest people I've ever worked with. You know, I learned tremendous in, in terms of just the rigor and the diligence of executing high quality work. There is no connection right. between what I do and and what he does from an aesthetic standpoint. I like to think that I, my work is more emotional than than his work. His work is sometimes referred to as, you know, slightly sterile, but you know that's in the eye of the beholder, right? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say right. that. I, I think I think his work is strong, and and I think, as I mentioned, the people that I worked with there were just tremendous, very very talented, and and, and super rigorous.
0: Yeah. So then what happens you work for Richard Meyer and then you and then you decided to go on your own to pursue your own firm I had over over many years while I was working for Richard and and companies prior
1: to that I had sort of uh you know very much off the record started moonlighting for for private clients I had met a uh, a guy David Lipman he was doing ad campaigns for Burberry and David German and, and a bunch of other companies and and he had it was a strange story he had a Danish nanny I mean if you really want to hear the details a ridiculous story he had a Danish nanny yeah no
0: absolutely I want to hear I want to hear all the gory details <laughs>
1: yeah this is how the whole thing started he had a Danish nanny from Denmark who was a pair who was also an architecture student he needed to renovate his apartment in Tribeca and he had asked her to do it and she said, "Well, you know, I can design it, but I can't really do the drawing and the filing and 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 look after the, the construction. But a friend of a friend, which is me, is an architect in New York. Maybe we can bring him in and and we can sort of collaborate." So I went to meet with David. David and and we hit it off very well. I don't know if you know David Lipman, who is fantastic, uh, visionary. I've done. Uh, yeah, you know, he's, he's great, great guy and. Uh, the day after, he said, well, you know, we'd like to bring you on board. And the day after that, the, the girl said, well, I don't really want to be involved. I think it's too close to home. You know, I'm, I'm living with this family. So why don't you take it from there? So ended up designing his, his apartment. And then he rented an office in the Meatpacking District. This goes back, you know, 25 years or so when I designed his office. And then he added on to his, his office on top of that. So I, I helped build an addition on, on, on top of his office where he had his his own little studio that was part of his, his company. And then he introduced me to David German. I ended up designing David German stores. Uh, we did, I think, four or five David German stores uh, throughout the country. And then David German had rented a 65,000 square foot office down on, on Hudson and Canal, which I ended up designing for him. And all of a sudden I was just... You know, I worked, without exaggerating, I worked 20 hours a day, uh, seven days a week. And at that point, you know, I, I simply couldn't continue with sort of a, a day job, if you will. So I made the leap at that point and, and started out on my own.
0: How risky was that? How How did you feel at that moment in time?
1: It, it wasn't risky because I had so much work uh, already happening that, that it was, you know, a question of survival, quite honestly. I couldn't continue working that many hours a day. I was I was burning out. So... So when I started it right. was it was pretty safe uh, quite honestly and I had become friends with uh, Jean-Georges uh, the the chef I don't know if you if you remember the restaurant called 66 down in Tribeca 66 Leonard Street Yeah absolutely it was in so, in yeah absolutely Yeah so so when when I worked for Richard Jean George had had hired Richard to design this restaurant in '66, and and since I was the one in the office who had experience with interiors, that sort of became my project working for Richard, and I became very good friends with Jean George at that point. We worked for years to to build this restaurant, and it, it you know it, it came out very nice. So when I started my company, Jean George said, "Well, you know, why don't you? Uh, I want to rebuild my office on on Prince and." Or he's a printing and, and Green Street and Soho. Can you help me with that? So I built his office, and then he said, "Well, you know, I have this, I have this restaurant over at, at the Perry Street buildings, which I had worked on when I worked for Richard. You know, can you help me design that?" So I designed uh, Perry Street for him, and then he said, "Well, you know, I also bought the seventh floor on top of the restaurant. Can you help me design that?" And so I designed that that as well. And so all of a sudden, you know, we were quite busy. I did uh, ended up doing uh, Jean George up at Columbus Circle for him. I did Nougatine a couple of years afterwards. We did JoJo a couple of years ago uh, for for Jean George. I did the Inn up at Pound Ridge for Jean George. Last year we did the the um, I don't I don't know if you've seen his restaurant out of the TWA terminal, the old old Sarnin terminal. Yes. in and JFK. So I, yeah. I did that
0: also. So you know, all of a sudden I have beautiful. Sort
1: of, I had some cool clients that that uh, we ended up doing a lot of work with, which was was great.
0: So all of that is like restaurant commercial use. So how do you yeah. then make the transit? or how, who's your first client from a residential standpoint, other than his apartment up top? You know, what what was your first big assignment to do a, an entire building? For many many years, I had done sort
1: of these private apartments for various cast of of, of characters, and back in two thousand twelve had been asked by hfz to look at a couple of projects that they were considering buying and to see if i could help them figure out if these existing buildings were something that could be turned into residential and and so on and so i had you know just sort of as a favor done a, a bunch of layouts for them they knew at that point that i was very good at layouts actually i'm that that's not true i'm i'm answering when was my first ground up building i gotta take a step back in in O three. I was approached by a gentleman who was building this building called HL23 on the High Line. Um, yep, and I know. It's- you, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you do. He had hired a, a, an architect, Neil Denari from uh, California, from LA, to do this super wacky building that can leave us over the High Line. And, and Neil had done a, a tremendous job with the exterior, but he had sort of a hard time understanding what is a high-end uh, residence in, in New York City. Because, you know, a, a high-end condominium in New York City is actually quite different from Anything that L.A. has been familiar with, at least up until now, I, I would argue. So we ended up getting this commission to do the interiors in this building. It was 11 apartments over, I think, 14 stories or so. And and uh, they came out quite well. And then in '08, I was approached by, strangely enough, by Gary Barnett, Mind you, this is when Lehman was crashing, right? And the world, you know, people were jumping out of the windows because they had lost everything that that they owned. And apartment markets was dropping like, there's no tomorrow. Gary Burnett called me up and said, you know, I want to build the tallest residential building in North America on 57th Street. And I'd like to see if you're interested in doing the interiors. And, you know, everyone else was laying off. Starting, I don't know how many, uh, you know, serious drug habits, uh, alcoholism, and so on. So, to get this uh, commission was, of course, you know, an, an extraordinary opportunity. So we ended up doing all the residential interiors for 157, which was an amazing experience. It was 500,000 square feet, and you know, mm. way beyond anything I had ever put my my hands on. And and you know, they did very well when when they launched it. He sold it. I you know, most of the apartments were I think over two billion dollars. So. It was extraordinary. Um, the the prices he got sent a whole new horizon for, for New York City. At this point, you know, fifteen CPW had sort of made the the benchmark, and we almost doubled uh, what we ended up selling for there. And and after that, we were. Uh, that's what I was about to say. We got approached by HFC, and I had done some exercises for them, and they had uh, they had bought the site on Nineteenth and and Tenth. There was a, a hardware store there. Uh, that's a lumber store I think there was like selling construction materials and so on and um, we ended up winning uh, you know they had invited uh, I, I think maybe 10 or 15 architects to come up with propositions for that interestingly enough including uh, Richard Meyer and we ended up <laughs> uh, winning this competition and and that was our first uh, commission in New York City where we designed the outside and the inside it's called uh, 505 wow. West 19th Street and yeah um, beautiful you know. building yeah, I'm very proud of that. I'm I'm very very proud of that. And that was sort of the, I'm sure you have as well in your career. You you can sort of point out, you know, a handful of of examples in in your career where you all of a sudden were were raised up to a next level, you know. And, yeah. And, absolutely. Yeah, and and that was for me, you know, a tremendous, exp- uh, you know, opportunity that that we got there. And and thankfully, I didn't fuck it up. So. Uh, right. we, ended up, we ended up getting hired also to do Eleven Beach Street for for HFZ. and then things sort of got got on the on the way, you
0: know. Yeah, yeah. So you've been an overnight success, basically, is what you're saying. Well, except you know, it's it's a good a good twenty years. <laughs> <laughs> right, an overnight success in twenty years. All right, so you get hired by HFZ and they say, all right, here's a site, or anyone, you you know, you have a client who hires you, and they say, all right. Thomas, this is the site, this is, you know, our FAR, we can build X amount of square feet legally, you've got a blank page in front of you or a computer, I don't know if you work with a pencil or with a, a computer, but where do you begin? Where do you find the inspiration and what drives that artistic creative spark to drive the design or the vision that's ultimately going to become your expression of what the building should be in the neighborhood? Well, you know, you, you have to remember that the
1: people who hire me uh, to design buildings in New York City are developers, right? And they are frankly always, strangely enough, almost always guys. Um, they are the businessmen, right? They're smart. They have a creative edge to them. But but at the end of the day, they are businessmen, right? So the thing that the sort of twofold... There's a a very practical aspect to what I do, and then the the sort of the creative side in in terms of what things look like, and what they feel like, and what they smell like, and and so on. Right? Uh, you know, the the first exercise, strangely enough, if, if believe it or not, in New York City, the envelope of the building is is very often defined by zoning, and by that I mean you have certain setbacks you have to re- respect, you have certain height restrictions typically, and you have x number of square foot that you're allowed to build. And we have never done a building where we don't max out all of these uh, components. The the reason being, of course, is that, you know, the taller the building is, the taller ceiling heights we have. And, and ceiling heights are directly translated to, to money in in the pocket for a, a developer. And, of course, every square foot that you build is, is a square foot that they can sell. So nobody leaves square foot on the table ever. I've never done that. Ever, 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 ever. So sort of that side of it, right? So, so to some extent, often, strangely enough, the form of the building on the envelope of the building is very often defined by zoning. Sometimes we have a very hard time even shaping anything. So a lot of it becomes right. A, planning, a lot of it becomes a planning exercise. And and the way we work is is first and foremost the first thing we do is start looking at the footprint of the building. And uh, with that in mind, we we look at what a guy like you plus a developer might come and tell us for instance you might tell me thomas this neighborhood here we're looking for uh you know one two and three bedroom uh, apartments we want your one bedrooms to average 725 square foot we want your two bedrooms to average 1250 square feet and we want the three bedrooms to let's say average 16 square feet so we- from that standpoint, you know that, that if we're dealing with that kind of efficiency, we can't afford to have apartments that are terribly deep. And by deep, I mean from the exterior of the building to, the, let's say, the corridor in the building. If that dimension becomes too deep, the apartments end up becoming too big, and, and then all the math is off the table. So a lot of it is sort of very simple planning strategies. And, and that's really where we start. Before we do anything else, we plan out the building. That is step number one. You will find some architects who are, as I mentioned earlier, a bit more ego-driven and, and a bit more driven about trying to you know make these big statements. I, I call them look at me building, look at me, right? To Correct. make these these statements and, and often they will come up with, with some kind of uh, shape that doesn't have a fucking thing to do with, with the program or anything else. And, and then you have to try to shop. In my instance, you know, we we make high end condominium buildings. You have to try to shove apartments into or condominiums into this footprint, and it, it simply doesn't work. You know, you can't try to shove something in and and, and really maximize it. So we kind of work from the inside out and the outside in simultaneously to the point where the exterior and the interior all of a sudden are in perfect uh, not all of a sudden, but through endless massaging are you know are in, are in perfect alignment. The aesthetic of the building, uh, which is probably the question you were asking me, the aesthetic of the building is very much driven by where we are, are building. For instance, we built we built a building up on on uh, Madison 86th Street, which you know is the upper east side of of Manhattan, and we clad the whole entire building in fluted limestone. And so you know, you you look at the building and you look at some of the details of the building. You know, the fluted limestone is is about the most classical. Uh, architectural element you could ever come up with. You know, you look at the, at the Greek columns, but we did it in sort of a very clean and simple manner so that if you squint your eyes, it looks almost like, you know, a very simple building. But if you start looking at the mm-hmm. details, you'll see that there is a whole level of materiality and execution that is very much aligned with the Upper East Side. The Upper East Side is, is in my opinion, more conservative than, let's say, the Upper West Side it's a right. whole different different clientele people live on the upper east side you can't fucking pay them to live on the upper west side and and probably mm-hmm. vice versa uh, as well you know so we very much look at where we're building and and so on we we did two buildings for for Mickey Naftali on 77th street on the upper west side and the upper west side you know it's a lot of uh, as well it, it's 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 a different buyer altogether One of the two buildings we we use this Danish handmade brick, you know, Upper West Side is very much sort of the history of of New York City is is where, you know, when people really wanted to escape the city, they moved to the Upper West Side. So you have a lot of pre-war brick buildings with old landmark wooden windows and so on. So we... We used all the, the the windows in one of these buildings was were all made out of mahogany, actually, believe it or not. So we it's a brick building with mahogany windows. There's a lot of the of the materiality that is you know directly lifted from the Upper West Side, and even mm-hmm. though you know you look at the building, it's still a very modern building. But in my opinion, it it's very very suited to where it's located.
0: I mean, it sounds like you have a very organic process, but you know, I love to make the analogy. You know, I'm a jazz musician as well that's my first love and i almost make the analogy in architecture to jazz improvisation where in jazz you'll have a set form it's kind of like you've you've got certain boundaries that are very tight you know have a form of harmony and then you're improvising over the top of that strict form and the art and nuance so so you have the foundation and the parameters but what separates the artist is the nuance and the interpretation of that form into their expression? It's very
1: emotional, you know. It's it's a very emotional, you know. The, the jazz and, and architecture to me is, is is you
0: know two very emotional uh, expressions, you know. Right. Yeah, I, I agreed. So who who's your favorite living architect then? Who do you look to and go? Who inspires you architecturally? I don't think the word favorite is necessarily part of my language but
1: I'll tell you who I respect very much and I would say you know on, on top of that list is probably Herzog uh, Demeron because they don't they don't rely on gimmicks they don't just produce the same building over I, I don't know how many they must have designed hundreds and hundreds of buildings and every one of them has their own personality it has their own heart to it it has its own soul I think that's extremely important. You know, there's a lot of architects out right, there who, who sort of strike something and it works really well and then they just go into repeat, you know, repeat, 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 repeat.
0: Right. But, you know, Herzog de Miron, I, I feel that you still will look at one of their buildings and they have their, that's got their DNA in it, right? It, it has their fingerprint. It, 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 it has even their fingerprint. You know yeah. it's theirs. Well, for
1: sure, you know, and, and, and you know, if you listen to Coltrane, you can always tell us Coltrane, right? Right. In a way it's, it's you know, you, you can't miss it. Uh, so, right. so yeah, you're right. But I don't think they work on autopilot and I think they challenge themselves without inserting ego into what they do, which which I think, you know, Swiss and ego don't really go that well together. Right. Um, so you you know maybe they have a cultural uh, advantage in that but i i think their work is very strong i i consistently i I can't think of anything they've done that i don't think is is fantastic quite honestly
0: yeah i agree i think that's actually a very good point you bring up about the cultural viewpoint and your work and i think that's actually very valid um i never really thought about that so how many people do you have in your office now we are uh, always
1: under twenty-five people. I think we are twenty-three or twenty-four right now, but I always keep it under twenty-five. Um, and you,
0: you're working on projects all over the world. All over
1: the world, yeah. I think we probably have twenty-five projects. Wow. we have a lot of we have a lot of projects. We have we have several buildings under construction right now in in New York City, ranging from ten stories to uh, we're building an eight hundred fifty foot tower on on Fifty Eighth Street over in in Sutton Place. Mm-hmm. so there's a full sort of a uh, gamut on that and you know what's interesting uh, about what we're able to do now is that for buildings like 157 for instance when when i did the apartments there we obviously didn't do the exterior right uh, christian the portion park did the exterior but the the projects we work on now we, we design the outside we design the inside we design the furniture Everything on every project I work on is soup to to not uh, from my office. All design decisions come from my office. Within my facility, I also have a, a sort of smaller FF&E, you know, an interior de- department that works with mm-hmm. me. And when we design restaurants and hotels, all the furniture is custom designed uh, for that. I have a actually I, I brought in earlier this year, maybe it was the end of last year. I brought in a, a Danish furniture designer who works with me. So uh, I, I've been designing furniture for the last 20 years or so, but now I actually have a guy whose full-time role is just executing and, and designing and drawing all the furniture that we design. So it, it's, it's a really, uh, yeah, it, it's sort of, you know, you go back to Europe and, 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 you know, you look at how design was viewed in the 30s and the 40s. Even, you know, Frank, Frank Lloyd Wright here in this country uh, prescribed to the same thing, which is, you know, you design everything. The the door handles, the faucets, the furniture, everything, everything, uh, everything is, is designed. I, as I mentioned to you, I'm not, uh, not big on, on materialism. I, I don't like shopping. I hate shopping, quite honestly. So the more we can make and the less we can buy, the the more fun it is for us. And I think the better the outcome is, you know.
0: How do you juggle 25 projects at a time or spread all over the world? I mean, you must do a lot of work remotely.
1: Well, it's, it's, I'm probably exaggerating. I think we probably have 15, 16, okay, 17 Okay, I mean, 15, even that is. I we mean, work, that's a lot well, of... Well, the, the way um, I've set up my company is that for, for all the, let's say, uh, new construction buildings, we always work with an architect of record. So, you know, if I'm working overseas or outside of the state, I would anyway need to have an architect of record. But all the projects we do in New York City, we work with an architect of record. And, and that means that we are able to focus all our attention on what we're best at, which is the uh, design aspect. And then we collaborate with the architect of record to, to you know, do the filing set, put together construction documents, and, and administer the, the construction aspect as well. So it allows me to keep my office small. And by having my office small, I'm involved with every project we do. Every client meeting we have, um, I'm at. Every decision that is made in the office, I'm uh, participating. I'm not saying that that every decision comes from me. I have super smart and talented people in my office, but I'm aware of everything that's going on. You know, it's kind of like John George who stands up at his kitchen, and every plate that leaves his kitchen, he's looking at to make sure everything is the way it's supposed to be. Um, right. So, and
0: especially when you have developer clients, their expectations are that they have you at the table, I'm sure.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And, and they do. And you know, and, and, uh, when we have a new interview with a new client, I, I give them a list of all my previous clients and say, listen, call any one of these fuckers because you don't have to take my word for it. If I'm telling you I'm going to be involved, you can call any one of them. Any, right. any single one of them, and, and they will vouch for that. They, they may like me, they may not like me, but they can definitely tell you that I'm super engaged in everything we do, you know?
0: Yeah. So how many hours of day do you work? Uh, well, because I have four kids, not not enough. Right. <laughs> not, not that many. Well, you, no. you don't have to buy them that much stuff, so that's, that's going to help you out. No, but my, my <laughs> twins,
1: I, I have twins that are two and a half years old. And uh, having twins, man, is a whole different ballgame than than anything that I've experienced before. You know, when you put twins to sleep, it takes two people. It's not like, okay, you do it tonight and I'll do it tomorrow.
0: Right. True. No rest.
1: Yeah, my my wife and I, we put the twins to sleep every night. I'm home home at 6.30
0: every day. Wow. So now where do you find – you know, I did a TED Talk about two months ago and the premise of the talk was basically – I believe that for the creative mind to excel, you need to structure you know, time in your day for unstructured thinking. And, and the idea is to give yourself moments in time where you have freedom just to think and no pressure, you're not in meetings, you're not doing anything. It's not meditation, but it's a form of just allowing yourself to be creative. And, and I call it the freedom to jam. You know, jazz musicians do it. Um, I'm sure you do it. What What do you have in your life, and how do you create space in your mind where you can continue to stay sane and and enjoy the creative process?
1: I think it actually happens most of the time that I'm not in the office. When I'm in the office, it's you know I spend exactly 45 seconds eating the same goddamn salad every day for lunch. And, right, and so so right, everything exactly. is, When
0: are when are the moments?
1: Yeah, it's after the kids go to sleep our last kid is asleep at 8 30 and that's the time to uh sit down and, and 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 sort of as you said you know meditate meditate on 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 life and uh just you know sort of think about what it is we're doing you know it's difficult yeah. during the day it's almost impossible it, it's almost impossible but i i don't work weekends uh i i never have and Well, I, not since I, I sort of made my office official, if you will, certainly since I had kids. So we don't work weekends. My office is one of the few architecture practices in, in the city that uh, has banned working weekends. And, and I think it's, you know, it obviously comes from, from Denmark where people, you know, complain that they have to work 35 hours a week. But, but I think it's very important, you know, the weekend you're off, the weekend you're not in the office. And the weekend is sort of a place to recalibrate a little bit. You know, pe- people come to work on, on Mondays in my office and they're smiling. You know, sometimes they have mm-hmm. a tan. Sometimes they, you know, have a sunburn. But, but you know, you, you can see that they, they had two days where they didn't have to work or, or you know, drain their energy and they recharge. And, and I think because of that, we're way more efficient in, in the way we work during the day. So I would say the weekends are, are, are probably big for me, you know, being around kids is also just extraordinarily inspiring. You know, the Right. The, especially, you know, I mean our, our little two and a half year olds now, the shit they say is just it's
0: mind blowing, you know. <laughs> There's a reason why they called the terrible twos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um well that's, so why, if, God, if, that's why God invented wine. <laughs> exactly. Um if you had to look back you know, I'm sure there are going to be people listening to this who are maybe architecture students or young, you know, kids coming out of college, you know, with the experience and, you know, the luxury of being able to look back. If you had to give them one piece of advice to take away, um, what would you tell them? Put your ego aside. That, that would be one. And then I would say,
1: say what you're going to do and do what you're going to say. Be honest. Be straight. Don't play fucking games. Say it like it is, even if you might be unpopular. But at the end of the day, people will respect you for that. That's sort of been my marching orders, if you will, from, from the way I was raised. And and uh, you know, strangely enough, there's so many bullshitters in, in New York that if you actually just tell the truth and you do what you said you were going to do, and you do it within the budget you said you were going to do it, and you do it within the time frame... You said you were going to do it. You you look like a fucking hero, you know, which is is quite honestly mind blowing that the bar is so low, but it it often is Mm -hmm. because people there's there's so many people out there who are just hustlers without any uh, there's nothing wrong with hustling but but you gotta have you gotta have some meat behind it, you know. It can't just be empty hustling right so that that i think is important and then forget about forget about your ego man Uh, as an architect stop trying to do something that will get you attention nobody cares about you nobody cares about giving you attention that is not why we do this if if you want attention you know i don't know become a pop star or or something i don't know what the answer is to that but but get the hell out of architecture that's not what we do
0: you know right amen yeah uh, yeah, I think that's really great advice, and um yeah, I think we can end on that and and <laughs> thank you so much, look you I know your time is really valuable, and I really appreciate you getting on the call with me and and doing this podcast and um, I'm really looking forward to working on a project with you at some point, and I'm looking yes. forward to seeing you know what you bring to market and uh, would love to visit your house sometime and see what you build for yourself. Fantastic.
1: <laughs> let, me, let me know if you're over in, in Barrieville, New York
0: uh, Will I got, do uh, I got plenty all right. well, of wine, listen. man <laughs> <laughs> Well, when this pandemic is over I think we're all going to go out and throw one big party
1: Fantastic
0: <laughs> Alright, I mean. well listen, have, have, have a wonderful evening with the family, hopefully the kids are asleep and um, really great chatting to you and stay healthy and safe, most importantly Likewise, man Thank you for all the in right. All right. Thank you, Thomas. Speak to you soon. It's okay. Thank you.